Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show. I'm Dave Mitchell. Glad to have you along tonight on UltimateSportsTalk.com as we kick back and discuss the weekly occurrences going on between the Cleveland Indians and the Cincinnati Reds. The Indians are heading out west, I guess you could say. They're just about six hours away from Cleveland right now in Chicago, taking on the White Sox in a four-game set this week, so it's an opportunity for the Tribe to get something going in the American League Central Division. Meanwhile, wasn't a bad weekend for the Reds as they took on the Cardinals over the weekend. And in order to talk about the Reds, let's bring in our resident Reds expert from down south, Mark Donahue. Mark, I'm going to start out the show by asking you the same question that seems to be on the lips of everyone right now. Is LeBron James staying or going? You know, LeBron James speaks for himself with his performance and his physicality and his drive and determination. And, of course, I think the only question that remains about LeBron James is he, in fact, as good or better than Michael Jordan. They're different players. Uh, Jordan was much more, uh, I think, athletic to to some extent, Uh, a, a different body type to be sure. But their impact on the game... I don't think can be, I, I, other than Bill Russell with the Celtics, the impact that these guys have had on the game I, I think is is just unparalleled in the history of the NBA. And in answer to your rhetorical question, I think to some degree, I think LeBron is going, and I'd put my money on two locations. If he's going for lifestyle, he'll go to L.A. and try and resurrect that franchise. Don't forget they're going to have some high draft picks. Uh, or he'll go to Houston, and he'll win two or three more championships. Houston, if Paul had not been hurt, I think they'd have, they would have beaten Golden State. But uh, I think if he wants to win a couple more championships and seal his immortality, he'll go to Houston. Of course, the Reds, let's get back to baseball. I, I could go on an hour just on LeBron James and where he's going to end up, but that's not what we're here to do tonight. Let's talk about what the Reds are doing. Uh, like I said, they had a pretty good weekend against the Cardinals, Mark. It wasn't wasn't a bad showing by the Reds. Well, I think that speaks to how bad the Reds are at this point. When they lose two out of three, and, yeah, those games are competitive, but their starting pitching continues to be abhorrent. And they're not going to win anything uh, with the starting pitching they have. And I finally heard somebody come out yesterday on WLW. Uh-oh. I think it was a, it was a caller, actually calling in and articulating pretty much what I have said all year, that the Reds' outfield is the worst in baseball. Absolutely the worst in baseball. Uh, Average-wise, production-wise, and there's so many inconsistencies that revolve around Mr. Billy Hamilton. Yesterday he won the game, showing what he can do with his speed. But it happens so infrequently. Oh, I thought you were going to say fast. It what? I thought you were going to say it happened so fast that nobody saw it. <laughs> well, it does happen fast when when he can play, but you can't have a center fielder, no matter how good they are defensively, uh, hitting 195 with a 238 or 248 on base percentage. You can't win with that, especially when your left fielder is hitting 191. Mark, there's a rumor and, he may give up switch hitting. 
I, I heard that, and I don't know if that's the answer or not. If you uh, switch hitting, because I switch hit myself, it gives you an advantage because the breaking ball is always coming in in toward you, and that is something you can you can learn from. If he goes up there right-handed against a, a solid right-hand pitcher, and they say that's his better position sitting right-handed, he's going to be overwhelmed for the first year or two. He's just overwhelmed, and he's overwhelmed now. So I, I don't see the answer. If anything, I, I think to a team like Cleveland, to a team like the Cubs, to a team like the Yankees, he could be a real asset. To the Reds, he's not an asset. When you when you lost Every year he has played, the Reds have been 20 games under 500. I mean, you, you, why would you continue? To, there, there are decent center fielders, not as good as Billy Hamilton. I give you that, but decent center fielders defensively that can hit 270, 280, hit 10, 12 home runs, and really add depth to that lineup. And the Reds, I, I guess, they just believe in Billy, and they're going to stick in there no matter how bad it gets. Well, let, let's go over the records, and then I'm going to go over the shock of the week that the Indians pulled off in, in my mind. The Reds are 23-43 and 43 heading into action this evening, in which they are off tonight. They're going to be in Kansas City later on this week, and that, that should be an interesting situation for the Reds. They're 16 and a half games behind Milwaukee. Boy, I'll tell you right now, Mark, I don't know how the Cub fans can be upset at Joe Madden, but in yesterday's ball game, I, I watched some of it. When he pulled Hendricks out of the ball game in the fifth inning for a pitch hitter in a one nothing game and went to his bullpen, I thought the Wrigleyville crowd was going to go absolutely out of their gourd on Joe Madden. Well, yeah, that that's... That's typical Joe Batten. He does stuff that people don't expect him to do. He's done it his whole career. So he's he's certainly proven that those kinds of moves work out, you know, more often than they don't. But you don't know how how Hendricks felt. You don't know if he was nursing a sore arm. Maybe he's pitched a lot of innings before. Uh, If he thought that... uh, Maybe this was the inning they get to the opposing pitcher. I don't know. But I'm going to defer to, to Joe Madden's decision, and maybe he explained it afterwards. I don't know. But uh, he's he's been proven right more than wrong. The Indians head into tonight's action against the White Sox with a record of 34-29. and 29. They are in first place by five games over Detroit, thanks to the winning two out of three against the Tigers over the weekend, the one loss that they had, Mark, was Saturday night when the bullpen, and surprisingly, it was Cody Allen that blew the game. It was a 12-inning loss to the Tigers. He got the first two men out on a night that, according to Terry Francona, he was not supposed to pitch. But he talked his way into it when the game went into extra innings. He got the first two men out. Miguel Cabrera got a base hit, and then the very next pitch, the Tigers hit it out and won the ball game four to two. That was the lone loss that the Indians had. The bullpen continues to be a problem, Mark. But Lonnie Chisenhall came off the DL. I've had my my opinions about Lonnie Chisenhall throughout the years. I've been a big Chisenhall fan, but I'm tired of waiting for him to either get healthy 
or start swinging the bat the way that everybody knows that he probably could if everything would click. He came off the DL mark, and surprisingly, the Indians sent Brad Zimmer to the minor leagues. He actually, they sent him back down, and it was an interesting comment by Terry Francona. I want to get your read on this. Francona said when you strike out 40% of the time, in referring to Zimmer, you had better do something with the other 60% of your at-bats, and Zimmer wasn't doing it. Interesting comment. I, I love those kinds of comments by a manager. This this babying the players and not holding them accountable. You know, baseball, like every other sport at the professional level, it's a game of performance. Either perform and statistically verify it, or you don't. And these these players who don't make changes in their approach. Now, Zimmer, I don't recall him striking out that much. In, in the minors or when he came up before. No, he wasn't. I mean, he wasn't. Yeah, he was having a he, – he just was not able to adjust to anything at the beginning of this season before he got hurt. Yeah, and, and so it, the, the adjustments have to be almost on a, on a week-to-week basis as pitchers figure out what why you missed that slider down and away. Well, if you miss that slider down and away, guess what you're going to get for the next two weeks? Mm-hmm. You're going to get that slider down and away. You better either lay off of it or learn how to hit it. And these players sometimes are just so hard-headed. They don't make adjustments. And you know, I look at Adam Duvall as a perfect example of that. They figured him out. And he goes up there, does the same damn thing, game after game, at bat after at bat. He's hitting 191. At, at, and last year he hit 239. Okay, he hit 239. The year before, I think he hit, what, 260, 265. Guess what, Adam? They're figuring you out, Kyle. Make an adjustment, and he, he just doesn't. And that is why these careers of players, and Zimmer, you know, in, unless he fixes whatever the issue is, it may be a while before Francona agrees to have him back on his bench. And I'm, I'm glad he says that stuff. It, it, it makes the players stand up and take notice. Here's your trivia question for the night, and I know you've got me pretty much figured out. Who's the first pitcher in the American League to reach 10 victories this year? Mm. I'm shocked you just didn't come right off the tip of the tongue with it. Well, I know it has to be a Cleveland Indian. Well, yeah. Yeah, you've got that figured out. Um, I don't know. Corey Kluber. Corey Kluber, yeah. the first one to no, 10 I, wins. I was going to say that, but it was so obvious <laughs> that it's not like a like a hard trivia question. He would be the most logical, and I didn't say it. My bad. I, I, I chickened out. I should have said the obvious, but I thought you would have laughed at me if it had been wrong. No, you would have, no you yeah, would, I probably you would have. Would have. Yeah, you, yeah. you got that right. But, yeah, Corey Kluber picked up his 10th victory yesterday, and he went eight innings. The Indians got out of it. Actually, over the last week, Mark, the Indians have seemed to find – a duo of relief pitchers that can actually get people out. For example, and I know you're going to remember this name, Oliver Perez. Has he done a job since he's shown up for the Indians? What what a job he has done for the Indians as a lefty out of the bullpen. And Neil Ramirez, talk about a guy who's come out of nowhere. He's been with nine major league teams, Mark. The Indians are his ninth major league team throughout his career. And earlier in the week, he actually had his first one-two-three inning, and 
He gave up a hit yesterday in the game on on Sunday against the Tigers. That was the first hit he gave up all week in four appearances. They've actually well, found somebody that can get some people out out of the bullpen, and that's the key to the Indians. If they can do that, then they're going to be hard to beat with the starting pitching that they've got. Well, speaking of starting pitching, yes, and and the lack thereof, <clears throat> because I get sick of hearing from you how great your starting pitching is. <clears throat> hey, when you've got it, flaunt it. What's that? When you have it, flaunt it. Yeah, well, you didn't. You didn't Farrah Fawcett say that once? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me talk about not flaunting it. Okay. And I, I, you know, there are certain transactions that an organization makes, it could be the signing of a player, it could be a trade, that has an indelible impact on that organization for years, if not decades, literally. You can make one deal that completely changes the trajectory of what an organization can or can't do. And I'm going to point out one that I think is having terrible impact on the Cincinnati Reds, and that's the Homer Bailey deal. We've talked about this for years. Mm-hmm. He signed a $105 million contract, I think, back in 2014. And I read an article today by Jacob Schaefer. If you haven't, I won't read the whole thing. I'm going to read some, some of it. It's in Bleacher Report. He says, The Cincinnati Reds are paying Homer Bailey $21 million in 2018. He's 1-7 with a 6.68 ERA, and a minus 0.6 war by Fangraph's measure. He's on the disabled list with knee inflammation. You've heard of bang for your buck? This is dang for your buck. Or another less printable word. Put simply, the six-year, $105 million contract to which the Reds signed Bailey in February of 2014 is the worst pitcher packed in MLB history. Back then, Bailey was 27 years old and coming off a season in which he posted career best in ERA, 3.49, frankly, which is not all that good. Uh, he pitched 209 innings and 199 strikeouts. Homer is homegrown. He is, was drafted, signed, and developed in our organization, then general manager Walt Jockety said at the time, per MLB's Mark Sheldon. It's important that an organization to reward our players that have earned this type of respect with contracts to keep them part of the organization for a long, long time. Hopefully, he'll finish his career here. That feel-good vibe quickly evaporated. Here are Bailey's ERAs in each of the subsequent years since he inked the contract. 3.71, 5.56, 6.65, and 6.43. Add this year's mark, and the trend is obvious, and it is disturbing. Now, he goes on to talk about other deals that could be measured against the deal that Homer Bailey signed. He mentions Barry Zito when he signed that big deal with the Giants. Yes, I remember that. $126 million deal, but his ERA during that same period of time was 4-0. And he pitched great in the World Series against the Cardinals, or the playoffs against the Cardinals, if you recall. And then he mentions the deal... Uh, that Matt Cain signed with the Giants. But Matt Cain had several good years after he signed, which Bailey has not. And then he mentioned Matt, Mike Hampton's deal with Colorado that, you know, maybe you compare it to Bailey's. But Colorado traded him after two years. And as he's say, saying here later in the article, the Reds have, they can get nothing for Bailey. 
and they got to pay him another $30 million next year because it's his last year in the contract, and then there'll be a $5 million buyout. So $30 million for this guy. And you look at the impact, what could they have done with $120 million over the last five years with this organization? Probably could have made the trade for Giancarlo Stanton. Uh, Possibly could have gone out and uh, hired the bat of the guy in Seattle now, and his name escapes me. But you and I both thought that they should have had him to play left field a couple years ago when they were in contention. Um, and I can't. Plus, again, they could have gotten some pitching. I mean, for for what they they paid Bailey, you could have gotten three or four really good pitchers. Not not maybe great pitchers, but very productive pitchers. I've got a great that, idea. I I have. I I don't mean to interrupt you, but I've got a great idea. I know how they can improve the team and or improve the organization and get rid of Homer Bailey and save the money. Here's how they do it. They get rid of Tom Brenneman and the other guy that's doing the games on TV with him. Get rid of their salaries. Hire you and I to do the Reds the rest of the year, and that'll save them the thirty million dollars they could just cut Homer Bailey. Uh, that George, you must be talking about George Grand. I, I just I don't know. I, I wanna... The the guys on TV, Mark. I'll tell you, I I am. It's unbelievable. It, it is. <laughs> it, it really is. I can't stand it. Well, you know, I, I was thinking back, and I'm sure you'll have some ideas too, but I was thinking about organizations that have been, if not ruined, certainly set back oh. for, for years over deals. And I, I came up with four or five, and I'm anxious to hear if you have any I've overlooked. Number one, the most obvious, Babe Ruth to the Red Sox. I mean, that, that changed those two, those organizations forever. Yeah. They're still, you know, they, the Yankees have won 27 World Series. The Red Sox have won one or two, and and because of Babe Ruth, because it set in motion the building of Yankee Stadium, bringing in the revenue, and, and the Red Sox went the other way. The other one was Frank Robinson to the Orioles from the Reds. That changed both those franchises. And it, it, Frank Robinson, had he been with that big red machine, that team may have won five or six World Series in a row. And starting in, in, in the, in the 60s, he, he was traded in 1960 for the 66 season. The Reds could have won in 67, 68, 69, then moving into the 70s. I mean, they could have been a Yankee-ish type organization. Maybe some lesser known ones. The Detroit Tigers traded John Smoltz. And they got, I forget the guy, he was, he was a journeyman reliever. Uh, oh no, then, no, uh, they got a pretty good starting pitcher out of that. Um, it, he, he wasn't a journeyman. Uh, let me look this up. They did. They got a pretty decent starting pitcher that helped yeah, them. Yeah, but he lasted one year. And uh, Smoltz goes on, you know, he's, he's a Hall of Famer. As you look that up, the last one I'll, I'll, I'll bring up was Lou Brock. Oh. Traded by the Cubs to the Cardinals for a guy named Ernie Brolio. Yes. And, and, and Lou Brock, you know, he, he's a Hall of Famer. And so th- th- those are the kinds of deals I'm talking about. Now, they could be trades. They could be s- throwing money away after a free agent. But it's interesting how Homer Bailey, given that amount of money as it relates to the total uh, payroll for the Cincinnati Reds over the last five years, I think has had 
the most negative impact on this organization in its history outside of Frank Robinson. Do you disagree? No, I, I, I absolutely agree with you. Um, I think the Frank Robinson deal, if you look back at that deal, Mark, I think that was the deal. And I'm going to look at the positive of the Frank Robinson deal because you know more about the negative about it. But the positive aspect of the Frank Robinson deal was it set up Bob Housem to make the Lee May Joe Morgan deal. They needed to do something like that because they didn't have a Frank Robinson in the lineup at the time. I know, but you give up four years. I agree. The Reds could have won, won in 66, 67, 68, 69. Those four years, they, they were a horrible team, and they got nothing for Frank Robinson. They got Milt Pappas and a guy named Simpson who played one year with the Reds, and they got some other guy who, who never panned out. But those kinds of trades, those kinds of decisions at the front office can absolutely ruin. And what would Lou Brock have brought to the Cubs during the 60s when he instead oh. went to the Cardinals and they won two World Series. I mean, the Cubs had a pretty good team. I mean, they had Ernie Banks and they had Ron Santo, they had Billy Williams. Put Lou Brock in that lineup. My God, they would have been an outstanding team. And Ernie Burleo never did anything. So those kinds of decisions, they, they, they have a huge impact on a team. You and I have been particularly uh, criticized. We've criticized the Washington Nationals for not going for it, right? Right. Okay. The John Smoltz deal, and I knew this guy. I couldn't remember his name. They traded him for Doyle Alexander. Yeah. Now, Doyle Alexander, in the short term, was a stud. He came to Detroit that year. And in 11 starts, he went 9-0 and with the Tigers with a 1.53 ERA. He pitched them to the American League Eastern Division title, but they lost to the Twins. So the Tigers went for it, but they paid for it long term. Yeah, and uh, you wonder, looking back, Yeah, I, I agree that a team has to make a decision like that. That's not my point. My point is when you are wrong. When you undervalue like a John Smoltz, right? What would John Smoltz have done with Detroit over the time that he was with Atlanta? I mean, this was a Hall of Fame pitcher. They could have won two or three other World Series. That was a good team they had back then. Yeah. So the the the, the onus on whoever makes this somebody in the organization, and and with the Reds and Frank Robinson was Bill DeWitt. He was an idiot. Uh, the reason Frank Robinson. Frank Robinson was traded for one reason, because he was a black guy who got caught with a gun in a restaurant in Cincinnati in the offseason. That's why they traded him. And the Reds, when, when they traded Aroldis Chapman and got nothing for the best arm in baseball history, perhaps, it's because of non-baseball stuff. They were afraid that the commissioner was going to come down hard on him for the domestic violence app allegations. Exactly. And at and, and, and worst case, it would have been maybe a 60-day suspension is what he got, or maybe, maybe even even uh, half a season. Who knows? But he's still the best arm in baseball, and you could have got something for him. These kinds of decisions not based on baseball are just ridiculous. And I, I just don't understand how you can be so consistent in, in these errors the Reds have made over the last four or five years. Hopefully... 
the new GM is making decisions that will pan out. But people underestimate, maybe I put it the other way, they overestimate looking at the players because the decisions made by the front office will tell you who are the players are going to be. And when those decisions are wrong, they can haunt an organization for decades. Let me throw that's, another that's let, me, let me throw another red straight out at you that really is never even discussed in the lores of Reds history. Roberto Canelli and a minor leaguer for Paul O'Neill. Yeah, well, you know, that's right. Uh, Roberto Kelly did nothing for the Reds, nothing. No, he did nothing, you're right. Yeah. And, and yeah. the Reds gave up on Paul O'Neill because they said he had an attitude problem. Yeah, and he turned out to be basically one of the leaders of the Yankee team that went on to win three in a row. Well, he, I know he's in the Yankee Hall of Fame, yeah. and I mean that, that's quite an honor. And he, he had unbelievable years for the Yankees. I mean, huh? he, he led the he led the league in hitting one year. How, uh, how about this for a deal, Sparky Lyle for Danny Cater? Yeah, <laughs> Danny Cater. Yeah, wow, remember him? And I'm going to go back yeah. even farther. Here, here are two trades that the Indians made that really changed the the scenery of the American League in the 70s. They traded Craig Nettles to the New York Yankees for a bunch of nothing. Matter of fact, if you recall that deal, they got the two pitchers in Fritz Peterson and Mike Kekich that exchanged wives. And that's why the Yankees wanted to get rid of those two guys. And... They traded him to the Indians. The Indians were stupid enough to take both of those guys. And the second deal was the Chris Chambliss deal. Chris Chambliss to the Yankees. If the Yankees don't have Chris Chambliss and Craig Nettles in the 70s, Mark, they don't win the World Series even with with or without Bob Lemon or Billy Martin. Yeah, and Chris Chambliss, I think he came from Kansas City, didn't he? No, no, he was an Indian. Chris Chambliss, he, yeah, he won, the, he won the Rookie of the Year with the Indians. I know, but I thought he played with Kansas City. No, he played for the Yankees. Okay. Yeah, he hit the home run against Kansas City. Yeah, that's right. That's right. It was against Kansas City. I mean, yeah. Sure, that was a big, big hit. Amazing. Amazing that, you know, you're talking about deals that change the fortunes of what's going on. I mean, and another thing is, Mark, we haven't even discussed this. If Frank Robinson isn't traded by Cincinnati to Baltimore, you may not get Sparky Anderson. That's true. Uh, that's true, because uh, Dave Bristol probably would have won and been been able to stay in Cincinnati. And can you imagine Frank Robinson in that lineup with the big red machine? I mean, my God, I don't know who he would would have replaced. Ken Griffey, perhaps, but you Griffey know. was was an all star player. They, you know, he he was a great player himself. But if nothing else, you could have traded him for something better uh, if you wanted pitching or something. But Frank Robinson went on to win the MVP in 1966 and led them to a World Series championship. But uh, that 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 and the Babe Ruth deal, uh, I can't think of worse trades in baseball history. I guess there there were some, but um, at any rate, the, the, the Reds so far have their front office has not proven to be. I'll tell you one deal I like that that uh, Jockety made. And that was getting Suarez for Simon. That was a good deal. And, you know, the Reds need more of those. But I, I think Suarez is going to be a stud third baseman for the next 
four or five years. See, that was a deal that was made, Mark, at the time when the Tigers were a pretty good ball club, and they were in the need of a starting pitcher, and they already had their third base position solidified. They Really, the Reds had them over a barrel, and, uh, you know, I can understand why the Tigers made that deal at the time. They were going for it again. They they were literally going for it. Suarez was not in their plans. Well, don't forget, Suarez was a shortstop. Right. Too. Yeah. <clears throat> so there, there's, you know, middle infielders are usually a commodity you can find easily. It's it's There's more middle infielders than any other position in terms of guys coming up because it's so hard to get any of them that hit. And you, so you go through a lot of them. But uh, Suarez, I think, is a guy who's going to be around for a while. But, you know, getting back to this Reds outfield situation, that when you have that many holes in this team, now we're talking about three starting outfielders that are not performing, and then you have a pitching staff that is the worst in baseball by over a run. It's not, it's not even close. The Reds are the worst pitching staff in baseball, or starting pitching. And... How how in the world do you do you fix that in two or three years? It's it's. I mean, I think I know baseball pretty well. I mean, if they gave me the general manager's job, I don't know where I would begin with this team. There are so many holes in it. Well, I, I you know we we've discussed this. I think the first thing you've got to do is get rid of Billy Hamilton. That may not be the first thing, but it's one of the top three. You, you've got to you've got to start unloading some of your high-priced talent, and that means a Joey Votto. Uh, you've you've got to do something with him. Um, it's going to be tough to get rid of Homer Bailey. It seriously is. But do you, do you bother hanging on to a Homer Bailey who basically is just hanging on, or do you, and you know you're going to have to pay the $30 million anyway. Why not just get him off your club where you've talked years and you've talked for the past few years. Matter of fact, you spoke last year about Bronson Arroyo. He's taking up a spot on the on the rotation uh, just because they don't want to bring up somebody from the minor leagues. Well, Homer Bailey's taking up somebody's spot in the starting rotation or the bullpen just because he's got a, a, a salary commitment of $30 million a year. Mark, you've got to pay that salary no matter what. Why continue to throw him out there when you know it's adding gas to the fire? The only explanation I can give, right now he has no value. So you, you, you DFA him and release him, and you know you, you lose the whole $30 million bucks. Or you might, if you're going to pay him anyway, hope he can come back and, and he's starting tonight in Louisville. Put three or four good starts together. Uh, Johnny Bench had a great comment in this article I, I read part of earlier. And he said his his motion that he, he he has no deception in his motion. Hitters see the ball at sixty three feet rather than seeing it at fifty seven feet or, or fifty eight feet because of the, of your deception, and that gives them that edge. And they're just teeing off on it. It's not that he's not throwing hard, but his location and his deception are not there, so he's getting pounded. So you, you hope he can change something have three or four good starts, get to the all-star break, and get something for it. If you just have somebody pick up the contract, that's going to save the Reds, you know, $25 million yeah. over the next two years. So that's that's the hope. I would not release him now. Uh, I'd put him in the bullpen. If, if, if he gripes about it, put him in the bullpen anyway. I mean, what choice do you have? <clears throat> you can't just 
walk away from that kind of money and, and hope that you got next year, too. And the same thing could happen next year. You know, I, I, I want to ask you this question, and then I want to get into what I think the Indians. The Indians are at a crossroads here as far as one player is concerned. Johnny Bench has never been mentioned as a possible manager. Why? I don't think he's interested. I think he's got he's making too much money outside of baseball at this point. He, why would he want to get back on planes? He's in the Hall of Fame. His reputation can only be hurt. If he comes on and becomes a manager, uh, he'll go down as, well, he was a good player, but a lousy manager. I don't think he wants that. Uh, the only guy that makes sense to me to come in who, who has the brains and uh, the he hasn't had a lot of managerial experience is Barry Larkin. I think Barry Larkin could be a good manager. He may not be a good manager in the first year, but he knows baseball. He's well-respected. Uh, he, he's a very intelligent guy. Went to Michigan. Uh, no, that, you know, that that's a drawback right there. <laughs> well, they do have pretty good academic standards. And uh, anyway, I, you know, I think Barry would be the guy. I don't think Johnny's the guy at all. And, and No, I'm not saying. I'm just saying he's never been even talked about as a manager in, in baseball. Not not once. Ever since he's retired, it's you know, and I just wondered why that was the case. If maybe some overtures were made, have you ever heard as to whether anybody's ever talked to him about managing or heard an interview? I've never even heard an interview where somebody's even brought it up. Yeah, there's probably something we don't know because that's too logical. You know, catchers typically are deemed as good managerial candidates. Yeah. Because they're, they're field generals, and Johnny Bench certainly was that during his playing time. But uh, there's something there maybe we don't know about Johnny's past that uh, that scares away general managers. And again, it could be uh, not looking for conspiracy theories, but it could be that he's just indicated, you know, I don't want to manage. I don't want to get on the airplanes, and who cares? I make no. lots of dough and that, that, in the Hall of Fame, and everybody loves me. That could be. Mark, I think the Indians are at a crossroads with a player that sits the bench, and his name is Eric Gonzalez. Now, I know you don't know enough about him to make an informed decision, but Eric Gonzalez is to the point where I think George Foster was with the Reds back in the 70s, where the Reds needed to put him in the lineup. And I think the Indians are at the point right now where they need to stick this kid in the lineup. Now, the problem is is that he's an infielder. He could play anywhere on the infield. He's been a utility man for the team uh, throughout the last couple of seasons, but he is really starting to come into his own. He's hitting 360 this year, uh, batting average. He's got one home run, 12 RBIs in part-time basis. But the kid just is showing signs of being the type of ball player that could achieve superstardom if given an opportunity to play every day. The problem is... You're not going to replace Lindor. You may put him at third base and move Ramirez to second, or you could put Gonzalez at second and leave Ramirez at third. Then you're stuck with the situation that you've got with Jason Kipnis. And Jason Kipnis now is starting to hit the baseball. My thing is, Mark, I think they've got to pull a Pete Rose uh, with Jason Kipnis, but vice versa. I think they need to take Jason Kipnis and move him to right field and put him in there every day, let him play right field every day, put Gonzalez at second base, or move Ramirez to second base, put Gonzalez at third, 
and let this kid play ball. Uh, the Reds. No, wait, wait a minute. Hold on a second. First of all, you really think Kipnis has the speed to cover right field? Yes, I do. I, I mean, he, the, he did a decent the, job in center, and he came up as an outfielder. Yeah, I know, but that was in the minor leagues. I, I don't recall Kipnis having that strong an arm as a second baseman anyway. So, you, you know, people don't understand. Right field is the hardest position to play in the it outfield is. By, by far. And so you really think you're going to help your outfield defense by putting Kipnis out there? I'm not asking about me about helping the outfield defense. I'm talking about, I mean, and the Reds, when they moved Pete Rose to third, they weren't thinking defense at the time that they moved Pete to third. Let's face it. They were thinking yeah, about, a, they, were, they were looking to improve the offense by putting Foster in left. Yeah, that's true. But Pete had played second base and played it very well. He was, he was an all-star second baseman. Right. So he can field the ball, and he had, he had a decent arm. So that wasn't a big risk. Pete was going to be able to field the ball. I don't think Kipnis can cover right field. I, I think he can cover right field. I, either that or they're going to have to deal him. Um, I think they've got to find a way to fit this kid in the lineup. He just does too many things when he gets the opportunity to play and shows signs of being uh, an excellent to superstar ball player for this team. And he's only 26 years old. Another thing is Mark um, Perez yesterday, the backup catcher, got hit in the hand with a pitch, and he may be going on the DL. If that happens, the Indians are going to be caught with bringing up Francisco Mejia, who's one of their top-ranked minor league ball players. This could be the opportunity that Mejia is looking for. They could put him in right field, too, on days that he doesn't catch, and Jan Gomes is back behind the plate, because Gomes is having a pretty decent year behind the plate right now, hitting over 260 with eight or nine home runs and over 20 RBIs. Uh, but Mejia's going to, if he comes up, Mark, they're not going to bring him up just to be the backup catcher. They're going to bring this kid up and let him play. Well, that kind of bat, I don't know what he's hitting this year, but his his offensive history is pretty well documented. The hitting streaks and, and the, the guy's been just an outstanding offensive player since yeah. he's been in the pro ball. So in, in terms of what the Indians need, I'm, I'm not sure that Kipnis is the answer in the outfield, but they've got a lot of trading chips, the Indians do. And finding an outfielder, to me, you're, you're two players short uh, of getting into the World Series and, and competing in the World Series. And that's your, your, your bullpen, you need help in the bullpen, and you need perhaps another bat, you know, from the outfield. And if you got that, <laughs> I mean, I don't understand how there's any question that they can be helped by making a trade. And I think Rasil Iglesias, he's, he's perfect for the Indians. Problem is we don't have what you need in order to make a deal. Well, you know, you just mentioned a guy who's hitting 360. He's an infielder. Uh, maybe the Reds do a three-way deal. Who knows? I mean, you. this is that point in time where the Indians have to decide, do they want to go for it? Well, I'll tell you and, what, Gonzalez would be your answer to the shortstop situation. He he would be. He he can he's come up as a shortstop. He just is not playing shortstop because of well, you know who, Lindor. That's, well, uh, we'll give you. Uh, how about we'll give you Shebler and uh, Iglesias <laughs> for Lindor? How's that? Uh no. <laughs> I thought I'd get you in a weak moment. No, no, I don't think I don't think that 
that is going to happen. But here's an interesting thought that I had last week. I want to get your opinion on it. Tim Lincecum was cut by the Rangers. He was brought in to be a starting pitcher. Now, we all know what Lincecum did a few years ago in the World Series, coming in as a relief pitcher. I've got, if I were the Indians, or even the Reds, I would bring in this guy at least for a workout, just to see if he's got anything left in the arm. But I don't want him as a starter. I want him as a reliever. That just reminds me of Bronson Arroyo. Uh, Lincecum has a, uh, a motion <clears throat> that is designed... Uh, for a young man. <laughs> He's no longer a young man. True. I, I don't see him being the power pitcher he ever, he was. You see, you know, they, he's a little guy. And he was, he was overperforming with good teams. Uh, and, you know, he made his money and he's two-time Cy Young winner. Uh, more power to him. But I, I think his, you know, his arsenal just doesn't play well with his body type right now at his age. So I, I'm not sure the Reds. It's, it's, to me, that's like bringing in Bronson Arroyo. So you don't like the idea, not for the Reds. How, how about how about the Mets cutting Adrian Gonzalez yesterday, and they want to cut Jose Reyes, but they're trying to talk him into retiring. Uh, the, yeah, I, I heard about uh, the, the interest in uh, getting rid of Reyes. Uh, to me, he's got some stuff left in the tank. I mean, he looked pretty good to me when I saw him play against the Reds. I don't know why he's, uh, I mean, he's gone downhill quickly. Yeah. Yes. Um, uh, the other guy you just mentioned, the first baseman, uh, Adrian Gonzalez. Gonzalez, yeah. Yeah. You know, he's, he's been, he, I think he's older. I'm not sure about that, but I think he's older than, than Reyes. Uh, but he's a first baseman, and that's a commodity that's easily replaced. And, you know, your comment about Joey Votto, uh, there's so many good first basemen out there that would you want to take on a $25 million contract, even for Joey Votto? Uh, I, I don't see people, you know, standing up and saying, yeah, we want Votto. He's, he's only hit six home runs this year, and the question is going to be, has he lost his power at 33 years old? And is he going to be... A guy hitting, you know, six to ten home runs now the rest of his career, although he had a great year last year. Uh, he, he's, he's not driving the ball this year at all. Mark Washington is not running away with that division. The Mets pitching staff is in disarray right now. You know, of anybody that I would think in the National League that would be interested in Joey Votto, it would be the New York Mets. That, that would be, that would have been the team that I would have thought would love to have Joey Votto. But right now, I'll tell you what, their pitching staff is in such disarray. Uh, what are you going to do with it? Yeah, you don't bring that kind of contract inside unless you know you're going to win with it. And, you know, Votto, he would be in a Hall of Fame easily if he'd been playing in New York instead of Cincinnati these years. But Joey Votto doesn't want to move to New York. He likes Cincinnati, and that's the other part of that deal. Uh, Joey Votto's not going anywhere, in my opinion. He doesn't need the money. Uh, he's comfortable in Cincinnati. Uh, he, you know, he, he's going to be, he's going to hold every record in Cincinnati Reds history except base hits. Okay, Joey, here's our problem. We can't sign anybody because of the contract that we've got you signed to, so it's either go to the New York Mets and keep your money or give us about five or six million dollars back and stay in Cincinnati. What's it going to be? Well, why would he get five or six million dollars back? To stay in Cincinnati. 
You said he just loves Cincinnati. So he, let, he doesn't have to do that. He can stay where he is and get all the money he wants. He's not a 10-5 and five guy, is he? Oh, of course he is. Is he really? Is he? Is he? But, but, but he, he, it doesn't matter. He's got a no-trade clause in his contract. Oh, he does? Yeah. Okay. And, and that's why the Reds can't trade him. But my, my point is that even if he agreed to be traded, I can't think that there's, a, there's an organization out there that needs a first baseman that badly to pick up Seven years left at twenty five million dollars a year. Yeah, you're right. He, for a guy, a guy who is declining in power at least this year, his on base percentage is terrific. He's hitting three thirteen. No, he's hitting three ten, uh, and he, he's still you know a great run producer, as it were, because he gets on base so much. But he's not driving in runs. He's not a typical power hitter per se. Uh, so I, I don't see the value in Joey Votto for a lot of other teams. I, I, I just, especially at age 33, he's, you know, he's not going to get any better over time. He's going to get worse. By the and way, I'm, I'm Ad- a big Joey Votto fan, by the way. A- Adrian Gonzalez is 36. Jose Reyes is 35. Okay. Yeah. So there, there you go. Now, now that we've got that figured out. Um, you know, Jeff Passan had a great article, and, and I love Jeff Passan, listening to or uh, reading his articles uh, every week. I, I get a kick out of that, and it gives me an opportunity to talk about just exactly what it is that he has written this week. Well, it's one of the things that you and I have discussed throughout the past few years, and that is, is Major League Baseball really thinking about solving their umpiring dilemma, especially behind the plate, with the computer. And it, it's an interesting prospect, Mark, as you and I have talked about. Now that they have got that box pretty much in every major league stadium that is available, they could just get rid of the home plate umpire, maybe not physically, but take him out of the mix as far as far as ball strike calls are concerned, and go strictly with the computer. They're doing that in a couple minor league parks right now. I I've seen where uh, they've got a guy upstairs that just reads the pitch. If it's in the box, he says strike, and the earpiece goes into the the other end of the earpiece goes into the home plate umpire, and that's what he calls or a ball. You know, it'll be interesting to see how the computer plays this because <clears throat> I've always been as a pitcher and a hitter. You know, as a pitcher, if I threw a slider, okay, and the catcher catches it, and people have to understand a slider uh, has has two possible movements. It can go down, it can go side, you know, to the side. Now, explain to me the physics. You're a catcher. Okay, I throw you a slider, and you catch it two inches off the plate, okay? That ball had to go over the plate. To get to the point where you caught it, and that is that pitch is called a ball. It'll be interesting to see how the the computer would judge that pitch, because if you look at yesterday, I, I, I was watching the pitches, and I, it always amazes me. The ball had to go over the plate. It had to go over the plate for you to catch it as a catcher, you know, two inches outside the plate. So that will be very, very interesting to see how the computer, because that, that could change baseball. You know, the, the one thing about it, Mark, and, and I've got to say this, that that bothers me. I think, 
and the announcers talk about it all the time. You, you and I have heard them talk. Framing a pitch by a catcher. You know, if, if an umpire is fooled by a catcher framing a pitch, he's got absolutely no business being a major league umpire because of what you just said. You're supposed to judge where that pitch is as it crosses the plate, not where the catcher catches the ball. That's right. So if you're being fooled by a catcher framing the pitch, you're not a major league umpire. I'm not talking about framing, but you're right. You're, what you said is correct. I'm talking about the pitch right. that is off the plate, but by the laws of phys- physics had to cross the plate to be caught two or three inches outside, and it's always called a ball. Always. Because it's where the catcher catches it. And that, that, that <laughs> if, if they put, if they, Put the plate and have lines come up and across where it's a grid. Yes. And if you touch that grid, it's a strike. Then I'm all for that. Well, supposedly that's, that's what, what that. Be. Yeah, that's that's what it is. I laugh, Mark, because when I was coaching little league baseball, it used to drive me crazy with the home plate umpire. These kids are not allowed to throw a curveball, and yet they would call a strike. A ball that's in the dirt. And my, my contention was every time to a home plate umpire, if that catcher is catching the ball in the dirt, that kid's throwing a curveball. Or it's a ball. Right. Yeah. But they would call it, they would call it a strike all the time. And, and it used to drive me, you're right. But I do believe that there's a grid that comes up from the home plate. And it, it measures where the ball is in contention to that grid. Now I don't know the I, I don't know the ins and outs of how it works. I'm not a computer genius, thank God. I would drive myself crazy at night trying to dream this stuff up. But as far as what they have done and, and what I have seen, you know, you and I have discussed this all the time. A strike is a strike. You want to you want to speed up the time of the game. My my argument has always been start calling a strike a strike, and and get get these games going. But the fact is is that you watch these. Umpires, they've all got a different so-called, and I'm putting up the quote sign right now, interpretation of the strike zone. What interpretation do you have to have of the strike zone? It's from the the armpits to the kneecaps. Well, there's also something called a situational strike. And when I used to, when I was hitting, let's say on the first pitch, uh, there'd be a ball two inches outside. And I'd, I'd ask the up. I said, "Would you call that with two strikes?" <laughs> and, and and they'd say, "Well, probably not." Okay, well that's all I need to hear. That's fine. Okay, uh, I'll give the pitcher a head start. Uh, it wasn't a strike, but I want to know if I'm if I'm up there and it's a two-two count, and he pushes that that that, that pitch two inches on the outside. Is he still going to call that a strike? Then I got I got to approach that pitcher differently, and then that that, that at bat differently. But that's called a situational strike, and a lot of major league umpires do that. Uh, you know, they won't call a 2-2 pitch or a 3-2 pitch a strike as likely as they would if it was the first pitch of the at-bat. And, and that's what I mean, the interpretation of the strike zone. If it's a strike, yeah. a strike, it's a strike. No, no doubt. Well, that's why, whether it's in our lifetime or 100 years from now, Umpires have worked their way out of a job because of their lack of performance. They, I mean, I was watching, I was on YouTube the other day and there was some 
you know, the most egregious missed calls by umpires. And some of these umpires are missing, missing balls, um, you know, six, seven, eight inches outside. They're calling it a strike. And that's, you know, that's that's too much. And the, the hitter goes ballistic, and I don't blame them. I, I remember one of the few times I got thrown out of a game, we were playing down at Atlanta. And I come up in the first inning with the bases loaded, and I'm hitting fourth. The first three guys come on. And it was a 3-2 pitch. And the ball, Dave, I swear to God, was nine inches outside. And the umpire rings me up. And I remember turning around. It was instinctive. It was in the first inning of a tournament game. And I asked him, what the F are you doing? <laughs> and he threw me out as he as – he, Probably as he should have, yeah, yeah. yeah. But I mean, I, I was just—you're—you're you're dumbfounded when a, when an umpire makes that kind of call. That is so, and that's what drives these major league players to to, to get thrown out and to go crazy. Every pitch a major league pitcher pitches—not everyone, but most of them—could be a ball or a strike. So okay, you, you miss one, you two inches or three inches, but when they're missing. And I don't know about you, but this year, the, the, the high strike, they're calling the high strike a lot more, which is okay, but be consistent. You can't call it half a game and then don't call it the rest of the game. Yeah. And that's why these guys are getting fired or they're going to be out of a job. Um, was Angel Hernandez in that YouTube video many times? No, but I, I in those particular ones, but he, he's he's the worst I've ever seen calling oh. balls and strikes, except for the well, who was the uh, the guy who died of a heart attack? Uh, oh, John guy. McSherry. No, not John McSherry, the, the black guy. Um, oh, Eric Gregg. Eric Gregg. <clears throat> he, now he was the worst I'd ever seen until Angel Hernandez. Yeah. <clears throat> so did, I, he, he was just a terrible umpire. Did you see Angel Hernandez get into it? I believe it was with. Uh, the Texas Rangers, he, he called a guy out on strikes and, uh, or he, no, no, I've got it backwards. It was a, it was a strike three right down the center of the plate, Mark. I mean, no doubt a strike. And he called it a ball and then the very next pitch, the guy hit it out and the Rangers absolutely went bonkers on Hernandez. And of course, you know, he, he still got his lawsuit going and he's gonna try to protect his image as a horrible major league umpire. Well, there was a call. And who's the guy playing for the Cubs now that played for the Rangers? He was the utility guy. Who, oh, Zobrist. Zobrist. Zobrist was playing for the Rangers, and he's up left-handed. And it was a 3-2 pitch. Dave, the ball was nine inches off the plate, and he, he gets rung up. Madden comes out and goes ballistic. <laughs> That's what Madden was, was managing. Now, I guess it was uh, Tampa. It was Tampa Bay. It was Tampa Bay. And um, Madden comes out and goes ballistic. Zobris goes ballistic. And honest to God, he, people can play it on the Internet. Just go to, to that at bat. And uh, those are the pitches that even the, the pitcher said, oh, my God. Yeah. And on the mound, you can see his lips move. It was Nathan. It was Joe Nathan who said that. <laughs> I remember that night. Yes, I remember that night. And... They they played that on ESPN. You know, the thing about it is we could sit here and we can complain, Mark, about Major League umpiring all we, all we want. However, and I don't know enough about hockey or soccer. to, to make, So I'm, I'm putting in the three major sports here. 
baseball is still the most well-officiated sport when you compare it to the other two, the NFL and the NBA. I think the NBA is the worst. Oh, I mean, it's the terrible. NBA is just ridiculous. I mean, the, LeBron got mugged <laughs> during those four games, and they didn't call. I guess you can't call everything, <laughs> but uh, you know the the idea that a player can come down and get hit five times on his way to the basket and a foul isn't called is just it, it, ridiculous. It becomes a um, it, it's like a sumo wrestling match. Yep. Yep. So should I even bother asking what the Reds have coming up this week from you? Okay, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna <laughs> give you the schedule because you, you're so insistent about this, and I think you make me do it because you want me to feel bad. But they got Kansas City. They're going to Kansas City tomorrow. They have a two game series there, and then they move into Pittsburgh for three on the road, and then they have Detroit coming up next week, and the Cubs, Atlanta, Milwaukee. How how bad do you want this to be? The Reds are going to lose two out of every three games they play the rest of the year, and you want me to come up with their schedule just to feel bad. No, I, it's actually the way to let you know that the show's about ready to end. Oh, okay. <laughs> now, as far as the Indians are concerned, they're in Chicago to take on the White Sox for a four-game set. They've got night games tonight, tomorrow, and Wednesday night, and then Thursday they've got an afternoon set with the White Sox, and then they come home for, let's see here, six, a nine-game homestand, Mark, with the Twins, the White Sox, and the Tigers. So, man, they've got a lot of Central Division foes to play during the month of June. This is going to be pretty interesting. Okay, just go back and look at our tapes and listen to our tapes. I predicted the Cubs would have a 10-12 to game lead at the All-Star break. I'm sticking to it. I mean, the Indians will have a 10-12 to game lead. You're halfway there. You're, you're, and they are starting to play better, but it's because they've gotten some uh, good pitching out of the bullpen. I'm not going to say great pitching, but they've gotten some good pitching out of the bullpen. We'll talk more about it next week. See you, Mark. Have a good one, Dave. That's going to do it for us tonight. Thanks for joining us here this evening on the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show. We'll be back again next Monday night at 9 o'clock here on UltimateSportsTalk.com to talk about the Cleveland Indians and the Cincinnati Reds. Until then, until next Monday night, for Mark Donahue, I'm Dave Mitchell. Have a good week, everybody.